So we're in the book of Amos. My favorite comic strip, by the way, side note, there used to be these things called newspapers, okay? So all you Gen Z people, uh, you get this actual physical paper thing with news on it, and there was a whole page, sometimes two pages, of just comic strips, just little cartoons. My favorite of those was Calvin and Hobbes. How many of y'all know Calvin and Hobbes, right? Okay, most of you. So my favorite Calvin and Hobbes is where Calvin is sitting at the, in this little, looks like a homemade lemonade stand, only it's not. The, the sign, instead of saying lemonade, it says, swift kick in a rump, swift kick in the rump, $1. Um, so this isn't laugh out loud funny, but I just find it really clever and, and thought provoking. Calvin is sitting there selling swift kicks in the rump, right? And Hobbes walks up and says, how's business? And he says, terrible. And I don't really understand it because it's the one thing everybody needs. And I think he is so right about that. And especially when it comes to our spiritual lives. We're in this book called Amos, written by a man named Amos. And it is the perfect swift kick in the rump for human beings like us who claim to be believers, who claim to be spiritual people who are trying to serve God. And yet Amos comes along and says, oh, really? Let me show you where you've gone wrong. Let me show you where you need to turn around. Let me show you where you've given in to self-righteousness and pride and you're headed down a road that's going to lead to catastrophe. The theme of Amos, I, I could sum up in four words, it's you can't fool God. And let's face it, you can fool most people. You can even fool the people closest to you. You can even fool yourself. We've done this. We've all done this. But you can't fool God. God sees and God knows. And it's not about God who's just waiting for you to slip up so he can whack you in the head. God loves you enough to tell you the truth. God loves you enough to say, hey, you're headed the wrong way. Please turn around before it's too late. And that's what the book of Amos is. You see, Amos was written when the people of God were right on the verge of a terrible disaster, a catastrophe. Literally, they were going to lose their nation. Literally, many of them were going to die. And they had 40 years. 40 years before the catastrophe hit, history shows us that it, the, the invasion of Assyria uh, of Israel happened in 721 BC. Amos came 40 years before then in the 8th century BC. And Amos came preaching this message of repentance. Now, I need to explain something else to you from a historical standpoint. Okay, so we probably all know, even if you're not really a Bible person, you probably know that King David was the guy who put the nation of Israel on the map. And then after him, his son was Solomon. He expanded the empire. He was wealthy. It was the golden age, right? So after Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne. Rehoboam is, to put it mildly, a disaster. He is, he's not a good king. And he, he's just arrogant. He's foolish. And he ends up driving away 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. So 10 out of the 12 tribes of the people Go away and form, they secede, really. They form their own nation because they're bigger. They take the name Israel with them. So here's Israel. It's up in the north in the part of Israel where it's fertile and they've got more money and they've got more power and they've got more population. And then all Rehoboam and the house of David have left is Judah. It's just two tribes. It's the arid part of the, the Holy Land where it's, it's all desert. All they have really is the temple in Jerusalem. That's all they have. So two nations, right? Amos is from Judah. He goes up to Israel on the command of God. What's unusual about this is Amos is not a preacher. He's a shepherd who augments his, his income with 
fig picking whenever it's fig season. So he's a poor man. He's from Tekoa, this dusty little town, doesn't even exist anymore, outside of Bethlehem. And he travels up to cosmopolitan Israel where they've got money and power and wealth and, and, and prosperity. And, and I picture if it happened today, if a guy walks into the, the River Oaks Country Club and he's got nothing on but Dickie's coveralls right? And, and, and no shoes and a, and a dip in his, in his lip and he's got an accent and he starts preaching to these well-heeled people and they're all thinking, who is this redneck? And that's the reaction that Amos, I believe, got when he went to Israel. Israel had two temples. So, so think about this. When, when they formed their own nation, they knew that the temple of God was in Jerusalem in the south. And they were afraid that their people would, would go home for the festivals and feasts when they were supposed to and go to the temple and they'd think, it's nice down here. I think I'll stay. So they built two temples of their own. This wasn't of God. This was their own decision. And, and they, put a, they put a temple in Dan and they put a temple in Bethel. And they, I'm not making this up. They put golden calves in each one and said, hey, that's a good enough God, right? As if they'd never heard of the story of Moses and Aaron. So this was a nation that was messed up from the get-go. And now, now Amos goes up north to speak this word of deliverance, this word of judgment. And it's a word we're going to listen to today, the very beginning of it, starting with verse 1 of Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and then in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now what's about to begin is Amos' first sermon. So you picture him in the shadows of one of those two temples or maybe in the shadow of the king's palace in the city of Samaria, wherever there's a crowd gathered, and he, he starts, to, starts to preach. Now, this is his sermon. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to sum it up. Verse 2, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. So let me tell you what's going on here. Every preacher has a pattern to the way they speak, a structure to their sermons. If you read chapters one and two of Amos, you quickly see uh, Amos's pattern is this. He is doing a circuit around the border of Israel. So Israel is bordered by all these smaller nations, and down through the years, they've fought wars against all of them. They've been threatened by some, they've been defeated by some, they've conquered others, but all of these are rivals of theirs, people that they hate. And what Amos is doing is he's making that circuit and he's naming each one of these nations and he's saying, okay, in this case, Syria, here's the things Syria have done wrong against the Lord. Here's the ways they have sinned and proven themselves wicked. And here's what God's going to do to them. And after, after Syria, he names the other nations, just going on a clockwise route. Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. Now, let me ask you something. If he's naming and, and judging the enemies of Israel, how do you think the people standing there are hearing this message? Do you think they like it? I think absolutely they do. You know, the word amen that we sometimes say in church, that's a Hebrew word. It means Amen, let it be so. Let it, let it happen the way you said it, preacher. And so I imagine the people in that, 
in that congregation, so to speak, or that gathered assembly were shouting, amen, to this preacher that they'd never seen before. Man, I didn't think much of you when I looked at you when I heard your accent, but I think you got it going on. I think you understand. And then after naming the six nations that border Israel, he names a seventh, and it's Judah, his own country, to the south. Now, the Judeans and the Israelites, they shared the same blood, they shared the same God, but they had fought wars too, and they were rivals. So listen to what, Judas, listen to what Amos says about his own country. Verse 4 of chapter 2 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And I'm willing to bet that the people loved that message, especially hearing about how the the Judeans were going to get it. Because even though they're our brothers by blood, we don't like them. We look down on them. We think we're better than them. And it's good to hear one of their own confirm that. Something else you need to note is he's just named seven enemies of Israel. Seven. In the ancient world, seven was considered the number of completion. So I'm sure all of them thought the sermon was over at this point. If this was happening in an American church, after he said what he said about Judah, everybody would have been gathering their keys, gathering up their kids' toys, getting ready to head out to Luby's. But Amos is not done. Chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel. You see what he's done here? He's just set them up. He's just gotten them all excited about the wickedness of their neighbors and the judgment that's coming on those they don't like. And then he said, no, 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 that's not even the message. That was just the intro. This is what I came to say. I came to preach judgment against you, O Israel. Now listen to what he says. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked on that day, declares the Lord. So imagine the shock in that crowd. One minute they're shouting amen. The next minute they're furious, grinding their teeth, pounding their fists, ready to tear him to pieces. Just imagine in in the modern age, imagine I got invited to to go to some modern, some uh, suburban megachurch and just preach a sermon on on a random Sunday. 
And I started my message by talking about all the people that we Christians don't get along with, people of other faiths, people of other ideologies, people of other lifestyles, all the people that we tend to judge and dislike and they don't like us either. Imagine I just went down the list of all of them and named them and and, and pronounced judgment upon them and that would make me very popular in that room. People would would like that. We like to hear about the flaws of our enemies. And then just imagine just as people were getting ready to go. Because in Baptist life, you preach a three-point sermon, right? Not a seven-point sermon. I got done with my, my third point, and they all said, okay, let's, let's head to Luby's. And, and I said, wait a second. Where are you going, hypocrites? I'm not done with you sinners. I came to preach judgment on you, not them, on you. Now sit down. And I began to name their sins so specifically and so accurately that they begin to literally suspect that I've got cameras and microphones inside their houses listening and watching and detecting everything they're doing behind closed doors. Now, do you think I get invited back for the next Sunday? Highly doubtful. Because we like to keep our sin secret. And we like to be disgusted with somebody else's sin, but not our own. So what what sins is Amos naming that Israel is guilty of? You sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. He's talking about a society that is so corrupt that no one can get justice unless they've got enough money. You know that that phrase, the golden rule, he who has the most gold makes the rules? That's what was going on in Israel. And innocent people were going to jail, were being sold into slavery because they didn't have enough money to bribe the judge. He talks about a man and his father go into the same girl. That's about what you think it is. It's about how the men of Israel disregarded God's sexual standards because they could. And yet they had the the nerve to show up in the temple the very next time there was a feast and act like everything was fine, like they hadn't sinned at all. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. That's a reference to a law in the law of Moses. God very specifically said, if you loan money to a poor man and you think, well, I need some collateral so I know I get paid back. Well, what else does a poor man own but the clothes on his back? If you take his winter coat, his cloak, you better not keep it overnight, God says. If you keep it overnight, that man's not going to be able to sleep because he'll be cold. And I will hear his teeth chattering there on the floor of the dirt where he sleeps. And I, you will have to face me for that. See, God is on the side of the poor consistently. It doesn't mean he loves poor people more than rich people. I mean, who even defines who's poor and who's rich? What it means is if you take advantage of somebody else, if you don't care for somebody else who has less than you, you will have their father to answer to. See, those of us with money, those of us with position and privilege, we can take care of ourselves. Somebody messes with us, we can can find our own justice. But the poor don't have anybody to speak for them, so God speaks for them. And y'all, if that bothers you, if you think that sounds a little too much like wokeness, get used to it because that's the book of Amos. He talks about this over and over again. There's nothing political about it. It's just that God says, if you're a just society, then the people who have the least are going to be treated right. And that's not what's going on in Israel. He also talks about how you take Nazarites and you force them to drink wine. What on earth does that mean? 
A Nazarite in that time was a person who had made a vow before God that I'm going to serve you with all my heart. And, and so to, to signify my, my vow before the Lord, I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to touch anything dead and I'm not going to drink wine. And in that culture, the Israelites had gotten to the point where they were discouraging people from following through on their religious vows as if to say, listen, you shouldn't be like all, all in on this God thing. I mean, I believe in God, but you know, let's, let's be medium well, right? We don't, we don't need to be well done. Let's just sort of be medium rare to medium well. It's okay. You can be a little pink in the center. And God says, stop discouraging people who want to serve me. Stop compromising he prophesies a day when their bravest warriors will throw down their bows and their spears and flee and leave the city defenseless. There's this nation called Assyria up in the north that was growing. It was, a, it was an empire that was based on one thing and one thing only, and that's military conquest. They measured their success by the number of heads they had piled up outside a city because that meant they had killed everybody they needed to kill. These were the people that were coming in 40 years. And Amos says, fastest man in your town isn't going to be able to outrun him. Fastest horse you have isn't going to be able to get you to safety. Disaster is coming if you don't change your ways. This is a message of repentance. This is a message of warning. And this is what we're going to be talking about until Easter Sunday when I'm going to start something new. And some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, Jeff, I think that's when I'll come back. Easter Sunday sounds like a good time for me. Ecclesiastes 7.5, let me just throw this nugget out at you. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. By the way, I'm not the wise man in this scenario, Amos is. My point is, sometimes you need to hear the hard truth more than you need to hear things that make your heart glad. We're good at finding things that make, put us in a good mood. Sometimes you need to hear something that makes you angry, that hurts your feelings. And this is one of those times. Sometimes you need a swift kick in the rump. And today is one of those days. Three questions. Why do we need it? Where do we get it? And what do we do with it? All right. So why do we need a swift kick? Why, why do we have to read the prophetic books of the Old Testament, right? There's nothing pleasant about them. There's those scattered little verses that refer to Jesus. Okay, that's exciting. We, we can remember that at Christmas. Okay, that's all the prophetic books are good for. We can ignore them the rest of the year. No, they're there for a reason. Why do we need a swift kick? Because we have an infinite capacity for self-deception. And you know this, because all of you are either have either been a middle-aged man or you are a middle-aged man or you know a middle-aged man, right? And what does a middle-aged man do when he stands in the mirror? He turns to the side so he can't see his bald spot. He sucks in his gut and he says, still got it. Still smoking, still a player, and it's not true. And that's what we do from a spiritual standpoint. We rationalize our sin. We excuse the things we've done to hurt others. I mean, after all, they hurt us worse. They deserved it. They had it coming. We rationalize our lack of commitment to Christ. I mean, nobody's perfect. What do they expect? Think about the Israelites in that time. If you would have asked the average Israelite, is your nation right with God? They would have said, absolutely. We've got double the number of temples that they do down south. We're twice as righteous. By the way, look at, look at all our prosperity. And true, this was during a time when Israel had never been more prosperous. They were building literally houses made of ivory or lined with ivory. 
the, the wealthy were getting wealthier and, and there was prosperity in the land. The last several battles had gone their way. They were convinced things wouldn't be going so well for us if God didn't approve of us. And God sends Amos to say, you're wrong. You're measuring things the wrong way. Now, what do we, where do we get this kind of rebuke, is, which is what we need from time to time? Where do we hear from God that we've gone astray? There's four places we need to get it from. And the first, of course, is the Word of God. If, if you don't know this already, the Bible was written for ordinary people. It wasn't written for ordained ministers only. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to learn Hebrew and Greek to understand the Word of God. It's given to you as a gift. And when you read it, and if you're somebody, and I say this knowing there are a lot of you in this room that are serious students of the Word, you know what we have to guard against as serious students of the Word? Two things. One is that we'll just read it to get it over with. Okay, I read my three chapters or my, my paragraph or my devotional today. Now I can, now I can open uh, you know, Facebook or TikTok or whatever, and I can move on with my day. That's one, more, that's one problem. Or it's the problem of we read it just to get fuel to argue against our enemies. Boy, so-and-so ought to hear this. Watch out for that. The Word of God is for you, too. And then there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's another place we get that swift kick. You ever do something wrong and you think you get away with it, but you, then you start feeling lousy? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's that, that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And you know when you're in trouble is when you can do those bad things and not feel guilty because then you've quenched the Spirit's voice. You can't hear Him anymore. And then there's the rebuke and the confrontation of wise and godly people. Sometimes you have friends, family members, uh, church members who are courageous enough to take you by the lapels and say, you've got to change. And when that happens, you need to listen. I know it's not pleasant. I know you don't like it when people say that to you, but you've got to listen. And then the fourth place we get this swift kick is from negative circumstances. Sometimes God has to resort to actually putting us through bad things on earth to get our attention. Now hear me, please. That doesn't mean that every time something bad happens to you, it's because it's the judgment of God. That is absolutely not the case. But sometimes we can draw a straight line from, I did this thing and this happened. I got drunk. I got behind the wheel of a car. I wrecked my car. It's my fault. My kids won't talk to me anymore because I keep yelling at them because I'm, I have a problem with temper and I can't, I, I refuse to deal with it. Well, that's on me, right? I, I'm a gossip and I love to talk about people and eventually people stop trusting me. I lose all my friends because they realize if I talk about her when I'm with you, then I'm gonna talk about you when I'm with her. And, and so there are times when we can see the punishment of God, because there's a direct line between our sin and the consequences. Sometimes it's not that clear. Sometimes we're just, it's almost like something hits us out of nowhere and we think, okay, where did this come from? And I just advise you, whenever you go through hard times, pray to God. Don't just pray, take away the pain, but Lord, whatever you're trying to teach me in this, let me not miss it. If there's some sin that I, I, I've committed that caused this, help me to see it so that I can repent, so that I can get right with you. It won't always be the case, but if it is, he'll tell you. All you got to do is ask. So that's why we need it. That's where we get it. Now, what do we do with it when we do? Because the truth is, when we feel that swift kick of rebuke, that is a critical moment in our lives. That's one of those inflection points that's going to decide the course of the next several months, maybe even years. Are we going to keep heading down a road that leads to disaster? Or are we going to make a turnaround? 
You know what the Bible calls that turnaround? Repentance. Repentance. Well, that's a word you don't hear in churches much anymore. We associate it with old-time hellfire and brimstone preachers. But, you know, fat fundamentalist, father, whatever, he didn't make up that word. That came from the Scriptures. That, that was a word that Jesus gave us to mean a turnaround. It doesn't just mean I feel sorry for my sin. It certainly doesn't just mean I feel sorry that I was caught. It means I, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to never go down that road again. Show me how, Father. By your grace and power, show me the new way. Put me back on the right course. And, and, and it's hard. It shouldn't be, but it's hard. Most of the time when we get that swift kick, we don't respond the right way, and that's why we never grow. And that's why we keep making fools of ourselves and hurting other people and, and driving folks away from the gospel. It's because of pride. Because we don't want someone else to be right about us. We don't want to think that sometimes we are the bad guy and we need to change. And in 721 BC, despite Amos' preaching and the preaching of other, other prophets as well, Assyria invaded. Samaria was conquered after seven-month siege. Tens of thousands died. Tens of thousands more were deported into the Assyrian Empire where they disappear from history. Israel ceased to exist because people were too proud to say, I need to change. Don't let that be you. I've got one more story of that kind of pride, that kind of disastrous pride. I'm going to read it to you. And then we're done. But, but listen, I think you'll get the point. On September 3rd, 1989, Varig Airlines Flight 254 was at Brazil's Moraba Airport preparing for takeoff. Under normal circumstances, the hop to nearby Belém would take only 48 minutes. Captain Cesar Garces consulted a computer-generated flight plan and read the number 0270, which corresponded to the magnetic heading from Moraba to Belém. But Garces inadvertently dialed 270 into the horizontal situation indicator. Minutes later, Flight 254 took off and climbed to an altitude of 29,000 feet. Instead of heading northeast toward the Brazilian coastline, the plane turned west and headed straight toward the Amazon forest. Captain Garces sensed something was wrong. At this point in the flight plan, he expected to be able to have visual contact with the Belém airport. Frustrated, the captain executed a 180-degree turn, not recognizing the absurdity of his due west, due east course. Having been notified by the flight attendants, the passengers were wondering what was happening. Garces lied. He announced there was a power failure at the Belém airport, and he would circle the area waiting for the power to be restored. Despite not knowing where he was, Captain Garces informed the flight crew on the ground that he estimated the plane would be landing in five minutes. He then ordered the flight attendants to serve a fresh round of drinks to the bewildered passengers. At 7.39 p.m., when the flight was 68 minutes overdue, the first officer finally identified the problem and started to explain to the captain his mistake, but the captain dismissed his explanation. Refusing to ask for help, he began counting the minutes until the plane would run out of fuel. All the while, he searched the ground, hoping to find an airport where he could land. About an hour later, out of fuel, Garces made a remarkable crash landing in total darkness in a dense tropical forest the plane was 700 miles from its intended destination. Although all six of the crew members survived, 13 of the passengers were killed. Both Captain Garces and the first officer had their commercial licenses revoked. They never flew again. 
That's the penalty of pride. That's the penalty of refusing to admit that you're wrong, refusing to confess that you're headed the wrong direction. You don't just hurt yourself. You hurt others. And that's why I'm asking you today and throughout this series to to have a tender heart toward the Lord and to say, Lord, I come to you today because I love you, but I come to you also because I know there's probably stuff in me that I've I've been keeping on the down low, I've been hiding from myself, from my family, things that I know I need to get right with you on. Listen, this isn't about us trying to seek you out and expose you and put a scarlet letter on your chest. That's not what this is about at all. This is about asking each one of us to come before a holy God and to listen to the swift kick of rebuke and to say, I need to change today. Because if I don't, terrible things could happen. No, you're not going to lose your salvation if you belong to him. You're always his. But man, you can sure hurt people. And you can sure make a mess of your life. And you can sure bring disrepute on the name of Jesus. The great news is that he's a God who saves. He sent Jesus to die for us. Why? Not just so we could get out of hell. Hallelujah for that, by the way. But no, but so that we could be made new. So we could have a fresh start. A new chance a second life, and a life that if we'll follow him leads to the point where someday we're just like him. None of us is just like him yet, though. So all of us need to be constantly listening for the still small voice of God or the swift kick in the rear end that we need. And I hope you'll listen for that. And I hope today will be a day of repentance for somebody here. I don't know who, but God has led us to this book during this season of life. And there could be somebody here today who today could be the day that they experience freedom for the first time.